Welcome to A Bit More Complicated, the podcast where you can hear science-based discussions about important topics, issues, and problems in society, and then what we can do to make them better. I'm Manuel Galvan at UNC Chapel Hill. And I'm Dylan Selterman at Johns Hopkins University. Boy, do we have a good show today, Manny. We're going we're gonna to follow up on some recent stuff that we talked about on a previous episode, and we're also going to get into a little bit of Twitter intrigue. Yeah, there's some uh, interesting debate around the episode we had, episode nine with Julia Steinberg, where she came on and talked to us about abortion and mental health. And so we're going to follow up on that. We had some interesting comments and questions come in from the people who are listening to the show. And so we really appreciate that. If you ever want to reach out to us, reach out to us on Twitter at a bit more pod, which is where we got some of our feedback, or you can send us an email at morecomplicatedpod at gmail.com. All right, so to start us off, we had some listeners reach out to us to take a bit of a critical eye at the Turnaway study, which is the main study that we talked about in our episode with Julia Steinberg, looking at whether people had an abortion and also subsequent feelings of regret and general mental health. So we would like to address some of those questions. So first, let's briefly summarize the points that Dr. Steinberg made in her appearance on our show. And again, go back and listen to episode nine if you haven't already. She emphasized that when you compare women who get abortions against women who are denied abortions or, quote, turned away, you find that women who get abortions are better off in terms of mental health than those who are denied abortions. She emphasized that it is losing access to abortion that is associated with worse mental health and that mental health problems that result from an abortion are largely driven by other factors like stigma from society or communities. Yeah, so this has come up quite a bit in some of the background research I did. So I wrote in concert with my colleagues at the science writing group on campus. We publish a online blog for graduate students to contribute to. It's called the Pipette Pen. And I'm the president of that organization. Go Manny. <laughs> president. President. Yeah, yeah. All the all the uh, privileges therein. And we wrote a statement about the science behind abortion in light of the new decision, the Dobbs decision that came down from the Supreme Court, where a lot of places were going to lose their access to abortion rights. And so there is just a ton of literature around this topic of what is the effect, the mental health effects of abortion. And there's a ton of literature that precedes the Turnaway study. But the thing that separates the Turnaway study from everything else in this area is that the Turnaway study specifically looks at women who are seeking abortions, because those are the women who are going to be affected by abortion policy, right? If you ban abortions, the people who are going to be affected by that ban primarily are the people who are seeking them. This difference between the Turnaway study and every other study that is out there that looks at the mental health effects of abortion is super key to understanding this whole conversation we're about to have about the methods of the Turnaway study. It does things that no other study does. And so that's why we really focused on it because it, it, it is the best study we have, as we said on our previous episode, and as Dr. Julia Steinberg said, it is the best study we have to investigate this question of how abortion bans and abortion policy are going to affect women and other people who don't identify as women who seek an abortion. So we had a listener reach out to mention a study by a person named Priscilla Coleman, who is who wrote a paper in 2022, just came out hot off the presses in June of this year, critiquing the methods of the Turnaway study. And the listener specifically said, in no other field would such a methodologically weak study get published. So very strong words coming from this listener. So we thought we would address this particular study and maybe talk a little bit about the context around this study, the points that it makes, as well as this researcher, Priscilla Coleman, who is a specific and well-known quantity within the field on this topic. Dr. Coleman, who is a tenured full professor at the Human Development and Family Studies 
uh, area at Bowling Green State University in Ohio has several studies on the topic of abortion. There are three things that I want to do at the top of the show right now, because we're going to spend a, a, a quite a bit of time talking about Coleman's paper. One, I want to uh, articulate what the who this person is. Uh, and so you have to get into a little bit of her background and previous research that precedes this paper that comes out in 2022. And then I want to talk about the people that are involved in the specific paper that she published in 2022. And then I want to talk about the claims that this paper makes and you know to what extent they're true or not. So I want to do those things in that order. So the first thing to do then is to articulate who Dr. Coleman is and the previous research that she's done and how it's been received in the field. One thing that we could talk about is that she has faced a lot of criticism for her research in the past. So just as a, a point of contact, Julia Steinberg, our previous guest, has a paper where she basically identifies fatal flaws in a meta-analysis that was completed by Dr. Coleman. The meta-analysis by Dr. Coleman came out in 2011. And in 2012, Dr. Julia Steinberg identified a series of errors in how somebody would do a meta-analysis. The basic conclusion being that there was a bunch of inappropriate comparisons and inappropriate methods that were used in the meta-analysis. And if you use the appropriate correct methods, then you don't get the result that Dr. Coleman got. And other than that specific case with Dr. Steinberg, there's just been a bunch of other examples of different organizations, including the APA, saying, you're not doing a good job with your research, Dr. Coleman, including just other instances where people cannot reproduce the analysis that she's doing with the data that she does. And it just seems like every time she she's being criticized, she's being criticized for coming to a conclusion that basically abortion is bad and bad for women. And the way that she's finding those conclusions doesn't comport with correct methodologies within the field and amongst other researchers in her area. That doesn't mean that she can't produce a good paper. She still can't. She still can produce like a reasonable critique of the turnaway study potentially. Point two, there are interesting people involved in this 2022 paper that Dr. Coleman got published. The editor for this particular paper is affiliated with an anti-abortion institute called the Lozier Institute. And they're the editor at Frontiers for this paper. And they invited three other people from the Lozier Institute. And this research, you know, this background research on the, who these editors are and uh, reviewers is from Dr. Chelsea Polis, who's a researcher at uh, Johns Hopkins University. Uh, Dylan stopped me, Grant. Yeah, J.H.U. So she has this really interesting tweet where she kind of outlines that the editor from an anti-abortion institute invited three people also from that anti-abortion institute and another person who's a known pro-life kind of scientist to peer review this paper that criticizes the turn turnaway study. It's very interesting that all of the people that are involved in this paper, in, from the editor to the reviewers to the writer, are all known people who oppose abortion. So let, let me just add something in for context. All of the information is freely available and, 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 and published on the Frontiers Journal website along with the article. It's not, it's not like this was some kind of nefarious secret, like, oh, this paper got in and a, a gaggle of right-wing like, pseudo-activists were secretly behind it. I think it's, it's, fair, it's fair to say that they were disclosing their wh whoever was involved in the process like right front and center. Whether or not there's like hard and fast ethical rules, I think it's pretty clear that there's a conflict of interest here in terms of this paper getting published. So let's talk about the strong claims that are made by Dr. Coleman's 2022 paper and see what they amount to. Something to point out is the paper is just so recent. You know, the first thing I did whenever I saw this paper is I read through it and then I was like, okay, let me go find an expert in this area and see what they think of this paper. So I reached out to Diana Green Foster, who is a researcher who started the Turnaway study, who is currently working at UCSF, has been there for many years. And thanks to Dr. Polis for putting me in contact with her. And Dr. Foster sent us a paper that she is writing and is sending to, I think, Frontiers to get published as a response piece to this paper that was written by Dr. Coleman. And so we have like the inside look from the perspective of the people who run this study, who run the, the Turnaway study. So let's look under the hood of Dr. Coleman's paper 
and also with the benefit of some of this research, some of this uh, uh, information that I got from the response that's been written by Diana Green Foster and another and more uh, researchers in this area, not just her, but uh, there's a long list of names that I won't necessarily get into. They will come out whenever the paper is published. Um, and let's talk about the back and forth here. So the the reason that we found Dr. Coleman's Frontiers article in the first place is because we got some tweets responding to our episode with Dr. Steinberg. Basically, I mean, these were some pretty, uh, there was some extreme language in these tweets. And any, anyone who goes to our, our Twitter handle will see the tweets in response to that episode, basically saying that the Turtaway study was junk science <laughs> or something along those lines and uh, pointing us to Dr. Coleman and then following up with a bunch of other tweets about Dr. Coleman's work. Very, you know, the high praise going to Coleman. I'm gonna, I, I'm gonna speculate a little bit here. I think this is a sock puppet account, <laughs> and I think that this is, I think this is Dr. Coleman basically just promoting, uh, the, this this publication. And but it's it's funny because I don't think we would have ever seen it. I mean, we're about to critique it right now, but I don't think we would have ever seen it if not for these, uh, the, this person who is tweeting at us, and also the this person. It suggested that we invite Dr. Coleman on our podcast, which uh, we we have no plans to do at the pulpit, but that was just like an, an interesting little side note here. Could be interesting. We'll see uh, if she reaches out to us after this episode. But yeah, either. So that is interesting. I was thinking maybe, maybe also just like a friend, maybe as uh, somebody who knows Dr. Coleman, or it could be just anybody on that research team, right? Uh, I mean, it sounds yeah. like... And when I say research team, I mean Dr. Coleman or any of the people who gave her a friendly review and passed through the review process or whatever. Could be. Yeah, just, you know, a random fan who's just into Dr. Coleman's work. (laughs) (laughs) A Dr. Priscilla Coleman groupie, perhaps, (laughs) is just happy. Listens to our episode and decides to tweet at us, you know, oh, you should have this this scientist on your pod. Yeah, just saying. And not just us, but uh, Dr. Polis has also been tweeted at by the same account. And pretty much anybody who nowadays who's mentioning the Turnaway study, it seems like this person has kind of like, I don't know, has like an alert on their Twitter that anytime anybody uses Turnaway, that they they get like an alert or something. But they're showing up everywhere, it seems like, and kind of getting into arguments with people saying that the Turnaway study is complete junk. Yeah, so let's get into this critique of Coleman's and and we we should you know like we're, we're gonna kind of go point by point but I think like just in broad strokes the the Coleman paper in Frontiers there, there's a lot of overclaiming, and there's an air of kind of hubris and, and scientific arrogance here that is very rare to see in a, a, a published journal article there, there's accusations of political motivation and bias, uh, and that you, you you typically don't see this in a formal critique that's supposed to be more methodological. Like if you're going to critique a study like the Turnaway study, then fine, make your critique, and we can interpret that however we like. We we can decide if we find your argument compelling. This article has a very strange flavor to it. Like you, you can you can kind of sense that the person is angry that the Turtaway study findings were even published in the first place, and that's weird. It's just a very strange way to frame the critique. But anyway, Manny, let's let's go through it and see what's actually going on here. Yeah, just as a example, a touch point for that kind of language. Here's just a quick quote from uh, Dr. Coleman's paper. The turnaway study is aligned with a pervasive and systemic phenomenon wherein scientific principles have been held captive by a political agenda that has no room for vetting knowledge and skeptical scientists. <laughs> so this is just kind of like, just to back up Dylan's point. I mean, this is, it's, there's it's... paranoid conspiratorial <laughs> thinking going on here. <laughs> This this is this is not something you usually see in a scientific article. Kind of a presumption that nobody else has taken 
has vetted this research at all. Like it's just been given a complete pass by everyone in the field and that nobody, and there's implicit to that is like, nobody's smart, as smart as I am to have made these, to have found out how bad this study is. Everyone else is either stupid or, or blinded by ideology or ignorant that they can't identify the deep flaws that I can. And I know that this paper, that that the turnaway study as a whole is just worthless, even though, again, it's been data on from the turnaway study has been published in dozens of journals with probably hundreds of people involved. Right. And all of them are blinded by ideology, except for Priscilla Coleman, who <laughs> is the only smart person in the room, apparently, on this topic. <laughs> so let's see if that's true. Is that true that these critiques are so damning and and by definition, they disqualify this research? So one thing to identify is uh, in the listener who reached out to us kind of mixes up a few things. One thing they mix up is sampling issues and attrition issues. Okay, so let's discuss sampling issues in general. Now, in an ideal world, like an ideal scientific utopia, we could study every relevant person. Like if I wanted to study the effect of abortion bans, I could get data from every single person who ever got an abortion in states that allow abortion. I could get data from every single person who was banned from getting an abortion. But we don't live in that idealized world. In our world, we have to take a sample of people from the larger population and try to draw conclusions about the larger population based on the sample. If we draw our sample randomly, meaning we don't specifically target a sample of people who are unrepresentative of the population, we should be able to successfully draw conclusions about the population at large. Now, I should say, sometimes we don't always have representative samples, and that is a limitation of studies that are published. doesn't mean they're worthless, just something to keep in mind. Our ability to draw these conclusions can be threatened when there is sampling bias, meaning we sample in such a way that the people are not just unrepresentative of the population, but specifically differ from the general population in a meaningful way. Like in the case of the Turnaway study, given that the population of women who seek abortions are likely to be low income, we want our sample to reflect that. If our sample was 95% wealthy people, then it might be biased in terms of how hard it would be to generalize from uh, that sample. It wouldn't make the study useless, but it would make weaker evidence about how abortion and effects of abortion work in the real world. So is there evidence of sampling bias in the Turnaway study? We, we could say that in the Turnaway study, their sample is not a randomly selected sample of people from the population of pregnant women who either did or did not get an abortion. So it's not a perfectly random sampling of the general population. But to be clear, that's not the criticism that Dr. Coleman is using. In fact, in some of Dr. Coleman's work and some of the other work that ostensibly challenges this idea, they're not using random sampling methods either. They're, they're not doing any better in this way. So whatever limitations there are in sampling methods in the turnaway study are about as good as you would see in any of the other top quality research in this area. That's, that's I think, the most important take-home point from this, is it's not a really fair critique to make about this study unless you're also going to make it against the, the other studies that show what you like as a result. Yeah, and I just want to, like, zero in on the section of the paper where Dr. Coleman lays out her critique. And she does a lot of quick, like back of the envelope math, which if you think about it, or if you're familiar with the methods of the study, don't <laughs> back make of the of bar sense. napkin math. Yeah. <laughs> so, so she basically says potential participants would include 138,000 people at that, at those sites times 2000 ad annual abortions times three years. And so she makes a bunch of assumptions about the people that are at these facilities. And she counts every single woman who gets an abortion at these facilities and combines all that together and creates an upper limit. And then uh, of how many people would go through of which is 162,000 and then says, if you're not gathering data from 162,000 people, you are engaged in sampling bias or you're sampling in a way that is unfair or biases your results. Yeah. That's a um, ridiculous. There claim. are, <laughs> 
it's that that it's I, you so... know, we we we, ha- we have to we have to say that and at the risk of like editorializing that is an absolutely absurd claim to make nobody in their right mind would say you need to sample everyone in this entire group in order to know anything about that group the whole point of statistics is that you can sample a small number of people from a large population and be able to draw conclusions about that population. Right. And, and to be clear, she doesn't exactly say that that right there is like the end all be all thing that makes the study worthless. What she then does from there is kind of say, well, so you only actually sampled a small number of those people. And then she whittles that number down and down and down because within the study, People drop out. Not everybody is asked to participate. So there's all these methods about who to include, who not to include. And she just creates a very small sample until the very uh, until three paragraphs later, where she says 95% of women at these facilities were not included in the study. Is Only 5% of women were included. Isn't that doesn't that show that this is not representative there? Given the extremely, this is a quote from the paper, given the extremely small percentage of women from the population represented in the sample, generalizations are precluded. It's almost like saying, whenever we do research, we do this all the time. I try to generalize my findings in our research or just in psychology research. We try to generalize our findings to the US population. The US population is 300 million people. You're never getting 5% of the US population ever. And in any psychological study or pretty much any biological study, medicine, like anytime a drug is tested, you're tested on a very small percentage of the population. So the kind of assumption that that is happening here that you can't make generalizations because you have 5% of the population, even like it's misrepresented, but even if it wasn't misrepresentation, it doesn't, it doesn't like deal with the fact that we do this in research all the time. Including in Dr. Coleman's own work. Right. That's the the broader point. Like you you can't make that criticism if you're also doing that way of sampling in your own work. Now I'm sure she would say she's not doing it exactly the same as the Turnaway study, but still, if you're sampling from a large population and you end up with a small number relative to the whole, that's not necessarily a problem. Right. And so let's talk a little bit more about this general critique. Why was every woman who got an abortion at these clinics not approached and invited to be in the study? That's like a a question embedded in what she's writing. And Diana Green Foster, Dr. Foster specifically addresses this question. And it's because of the methods involved in the turnaway study. So uh, amongst, sorry, amongst women who are seeking abortions, they wanted to evaluate people who were turned away versus people who were able to get abortions. That's the comparison they're going for. Sorry, I I was just going to say like that they are at very similar points in their pregnancy. So it's not like we're comparing someone who comes in for an abortion when they're like three weeks pregnant versus, you know, someone who's turned away when they're eight months pregnant. It's that both groups are at virtually the same point in their pregnancy, but some are just under the gestational limit and some are just over the gestational limit. And that makes them very, very good comparison groups. Right, right. This is so key to understanding. It's what's mind blowing is that like Coleman writes as if she doesn't understand that this is the methodological approach the study takes. It's by it's by design that they didn't ask every woman who got an abortion to be part of the study. They specifically targeted women who were in specific situations, which is a small minority of the women who go to get an abortion, which is people who are really close to that gestational limit. The women who are right underneath it are able to get an abortion. The women who are right above it are not able to get an abortion. But those two women are very similar in terms of where they are in, in their course of their pregnancy. And so they're easier to compare. They make It makes for a more legitimate comparison, which was a, an issue that they were trying to address from the previous lit- literature. Again, the previous literature had looked at women who get abortions versus women who are not pregnant or women who didn't want an abortion in the first place. That comparison is fraught with, with all sorts of differences between these types of women because the woman who wants an abortion is very different than a woman who doesn't want an abortion. And a woman who wants an abortion is also very different from a woman who's not even pregnant which is what a lot of the previous research had looked at. And so the Turnaway study was trying to make this like really perfect comparison between women who are very, very similar. It's just that they were on one side or the other of the gestational limit. None of this is really acknowledged. It doesn't factor into the statistics that 
Coleman puts into her paper. They're just kind of not recognized so that she can make this point that, oh, only 5% of the women. She doesn't have a count of how many women were at that gestational limit. And from the methods of the, uh, the turnaway study, they basically asked everybody. Now, it does depend. There was some, this, is, this research is occurring in a clinical sample. And this is really key too. This is not a randomized control trial. Like there wasn't a researcher assigning women to one condition or the other. This is a prospective longitudinal study. So a woman was coming in to get this procedure done. Everybody there is a clinician. They're trying to get re they're trying to get work done. They're actually trying to finish procedures. They're doing stuff with patients. So clinics did approach every woman who was denied an abortion due to being over the gestational gestational limit. But the other two groups, women who uh, were under the gestational limit and people who were seeking first trimester abortions, which is another group of, of women that they sought, research groups at, at the different clinics were allowed to select days or shifts to recruit so long as they approach every eligible person while they're doing the recruitment. So Coleman is trying to present it as they selected women that were non-randomly selected, like they selected... I don't know, women who really like abortion or something like that, and they allowed them to be in the study, and that's that's changing the results. But the reality is, is that, no, you had to ask every single person that came in during that shift. There weren't these degrees of freedom for the researchers to decide who's in the study and who's not. It was more like, on what shifts do we have to ask people? And then that was made at that. It was on a shift level or day level, not on a by-patient level. So one final piece on sampling is that the in the paper written by Diana, Diana Green Foster, she identifies that like they did follow-up studies on the people who uh, are involved in the study. There aren't demographic differences from the wider population of women who receive abortions and the women who are in the study. If there was a sampling bias, if they had gathered data from people who are unrepresented, as, I, as we said in the example, did you only sample rich people? Did you only sample white women? Did you only sample people of a particular demographic group? And they did that research. They didn't find significant differences between the sample that they use in the turnaway study versus the sample that exists in the real world. That is the key thing to knowing whether you have a sampling bias is are the people you sampled meaningfully different than the people outside of your sample? And the indications that they have in the turnaway study, they aren't. They're, they're very similar. So the next criticism here is about something called attrition. This is a scientific word for when participants drop out of a study over time. So if you're doing a longitudinal study that lasts for years, you're going to get some people who move away to, you know, somewhere else, or they just decide that they're not going to participate anymore for whatever reason, or, you know, some people die, some, you know, things happen, and it just it, it makes it so that they can't participate anymore. We always have attrition in any longitudinal study. That's important to note. Like the, the, the fact that attrition happens is not in itself a weakness of the study. In this case, there's not really a meaningful difference in terms of the people in the end resulting sample, like the, the final sample of participants versus those who are lost to attrition. The attrition rates in the turnaway study are similar to other longitudinal research. So again, just like with the sampling issue, this is an issue for all studies. It's not a specific issue that makes the turnaway study flawed in any way. This is an issue for all studies like this. Yes. As we said, we don't live in a scientific utopia. We can't like force people to ask every question. Some people just don't have time anymore, or some people actually die. That's like a meaningful part of attrition in a five-year long study. And so this is the really key thing. If you don't have substantive knowledge in this area, you can get confused by reading a paper that says attrition beyond 60% or whatever is a death knell for the paper that you're writing if you're doing a randomized control trial. But that's not the case for longitudinal research. And we'll put a citation in, in the show notes, but basically longitudinal perspective research, they have different, they use different methods. They have different statistical approaches to accounting for attrition. And this paper, or, or sorry, the, the turnaway study is no different. The rates are within the expected range for a five-year study and other perspective studies. They find no difference in the retention rate based on the emotions 
for the, the so for one of the papers they looked at different emotions that are experienced by people who have abortions versus are turned away and they didn't find any difference between the two groups so it's not like those groups are are falling out of the study at different at different rates okay so in in the coleman paper she makes reference to a bunch of different studies that have shown basically the opposite uh, or ostensibly show the opposite of what the turnaway study found which is that having an abortion is associated with an increased likelihood of either mental distress or some kind of mental illness. Just a couple things on all the research she points out. One, she's an author on almost half of those papers. Two, some of them have been subject to critique from the rest of the field saying like they can't reproduce the findings or whatever. And again, all of them use methods that are not similar to the turnaway study. They don't make the comparison that the turnaway study makes. So I just wanted to acknowledge that. I think we should definitely go into some of that research because it's not it's not just this one researcher Coleman who's making this general claim there's others who have you know seemingly found evidence to support this idea and so we're going to look at one uh, set one piece of research in particular and there's a couple of papers here that so the, the first author is David Ferguson and I, I want to give Dr. Ferguson some credit here because from what I can tell in these papers that have been published, the language is much more nuanced and reasonable sounding. Mm -hmm. There's, you know, a clear desire to make good faith critiques of uh, justifications for policy based on research evidence. It does not seem to be ideologically motivated but let's let's just go into the the study itself so this was published in the british journal of psychiatry 2008 and they're doing this 30-year longitudinal study the sample size by the way about the same as the turnaway study so that's important to note because dr coleman was mm -hmm. saying that the turnaway study's sampling was flawed but again in this study which shows the opposite results it's about the same Hmm. I wonder what's really going on there with that critique. Manny, mm -hmm. <laughs> are you wondering? <laughs> am I am I crazy here? <laughs> like, no, no. I think you're right. I mean, it seems like there's a very selective uh, application of some of these critiques. So, in this Ferguson and colleagues paper, they have a different comparison group. So, as we mentioned with the Turnaway study, they're looking at women who are at almost the exact point. The same, uh, almost the exact same point in their pregnancy. Some of them just over the limit, some of them just under the limit for whether they can get an abortion. In this paper, they have different comparison groups. So the first group is women who have an abortion at any stage during their pregnancy. And then they compare them to women who experience a pregnancy loss. So that includes miscarriages, stillbirths. And then there's a live birth group where they have some kind of adverse reaction and that includes women saying that the pregnancy was unwanted or some kind of psychological distress happening with the pregnancy and then the fourth group is those who had a live birth and no adverse reaction to the pregnancy now in a lot of these studies, this is true not just of this one, but some of the other ones, they're following a group of women over time. Only about half of them have pregnancies. So out of the between five and 600 people in their total sample, only 53% or 284 women reported having a pregnancy. And of those, 117 women had an abortion for a total of 153 abortions and that is going along with 138 pregnancy losses 66 live births that had an adverse reaction and 329 live births where there was no adverse reaction so their comparison groups are different and they look at a pretty wide range of mental health outcomes, including things like major depression, anxiety disorder, suicidal ideation, alcohol dependence, illicit drug dependence, and a composite variable. They also control for a number of other variables that might be relevant to consider within the context of mental health. We want to control for 
their family living standards, socioeconomic status, annual income, education level, measures of family functioning, so parental adjustment and, and family functioning, exposure to child abuse, other types of individual characteristics like trait levels of self-esteem or neuroticism. Those are basically just personality traits. So they want to control for a lot of other things that might make a difference in terms of resulting mental health outcomes. And it's good that they did that. So the uh, main finding is that there was a small increase in the likelihood of some kind of mental illness or some kind of uh, mental health outcome and a negative mental health outcome for those who reported abortions relative to losing the pregnancy and unwanted or reverse reaction to the pregnancy or live birth. Um, and I, I, I want to once again give these researchers credit for making moderate and tempered claims and specifically say that the results do not support pro-life positions that abortion has large and devastating effects on the mental health of women. That's a very important point. But they also suggest that, and, and this is relevant for policymaking in places like New Zealand and the UK, where policymakers specifically say that they're authorizing abortions in order to protect the mental health of women. And the authors say, well, you know, that's not really supported by the data. Now, to be clear, there may be lots of other very good reasons why we should have uh, accessible abortion as a policy, but that trying to minimize mental health outcomes for women may not be one of them. Yeah, based on this study. Based on this results of this study, yes. I, I think that is a very reasonable claim based on the data being presented here. Just to be clear, not everybody who has data that doesn't comport with the Turnaway study is necessarily like dishonest or doing something wrong or has a bad critique. I think you know, we've been coming down fairly hard on Dr. <laughs> Coleman. Her paper is not, is not very good. That's why, as Dylan was saying, the Ferguson paper is quite good. And it has conclusions that seem pretty reasonable. Now, it is one study, right? And you, you have to kind of look at multiple studies to get a sense of what is the larger base of outcomes. As Dylan was saying, there's a few, uh, just over 100 people who had an abortion in this study. So if you want to make generalizable claims to the broader public, you probably want to look at all the studies that that study this topic and then evaluate what they do as a whole. Fortunately, our previous guest, Dr. Julia Seinberg, has done research in this area too, also looking at comparing women who have abortions compared to women who do not, and basically tried to replicate this effect using data in the United States. And what she found is if you control for the relevant factors here, then you uh, basically account for the negative impact of having an abortion. They looked at a bunch of different factors. The number of mental health problems a, ha a person has before they have an abortion or before their childbirth. The number of adverse exposures that a person has prior to being pregnant. The number of miscarriages they've had prior to being pregnant. Their age at their first pregnancy. Their race, their ethnicity, their childhood economic status. All of these factors, when you in incorporate them into the model, you basically find that there isn't a difference. Or at least what this basically argues is the difference that exists between women who get an abortion versus women who do not is a consequence of a variety of other factors, not the abortion itself, but the, the factors that lead one to have an abortion or the, the factors that are associated with having an abortion. And so this is just the key thing to keep in mind. And the reason why the Turnaway study is so valuable is because it sets aside all of these other, uh, other factors and it basically like allows you to look at women who are in very similar uh, life circumstances around their abortion and doesn't just compare women who have one versus women who don't. We should also probably mention that the Turnaway study was done with Americans, and the other study that we just went into some detail on, the Ferguson and colleagues paper, was done in New Zealand. There may be some cultural factors that are relevant here in terms of how people feel about getting an abortion, and there may be other ways in which people's feelings and mental health outcomes will be different going forward as a result of legal changes, as we talked about in some of our previous episodes, 
I think this is a really important time for researchers in this area to continue to collect data. Beyond all of these statistical points, I think Dylan brought up something in the very beginning of our conversation, which there's this kind of like this conspiratorial angle that all these liberal academics are out to get us pro-life people and they're not allowing these findings to these real findings to like enter into the mainstream. I think I think conspiratorial is a very good word here. I think there's just another word that I would use to describe this is there's a little bit of an anti-intellectual bent to this, right? And it's also unfalsifiable. You can dismiss almost any study that comes out of the academy on political grounds because there's not enough conservatives in academia. It's anti-intellectual in that sense. The other thing I would argue is it's unfalsifiable. Basically, if anything ever disagrees with a conservative worldview, therefore it is based on political bias. But how do we differentiate between the things that are just wrong about the, the conservative worldview versus things that come from a, a political bias? We can't. It's just you can introduce the narrative to dismiss anything or not. There's no way to check and see if it's true. We can't verify how how accurate that claim is. So uh, it's just kind of problematic to say, because of the political bias of the field, I'm going to dismiss this findings I don't like. Any thoughts on that? I feel like that's uh, a, an interesting point and probably deserves its own episode. So no, I'll hold off for now. Yeah. And, and maybe we'll circle back around to this topic of political bias and research, which I'm not saying is not a problem. I mean, we can, we can, t we can talk about how to ameliorate the problem of political bias. I'm not saying it's, you know, we can't talk about it or anything like that. I'm just saying it's not as simple as saying political bias exists. Therefore, I can d dismiss any finding I don't like or that doesn't agree with conservative politics. It shouldn't be a thought terminating experience for you to say, but there's political bias. It's like, sure, but you still have to look at the methods. You still have to think about the science. And that is how you determine what is a good science or not, not simply the political affiliation of the people, which is why even though we spent some time talking about the political biases of the writer, the editor, and the reviewers that were on this paper, we also spent time talking about their critiques and going through them and identifying whether they're accurate. Now for the ending of this episode, we're going to pivot to another set of concerns that came out from other listeners. One of our listeners provided a thoughtful and interesting set of questions. One of the things that Dr. Seinberg talked about in her presentation of information was that 99% of women were found to have no regrets about having their abortion five years after the abortion occurred. One of our listeners expressed, is that true? That just sounds implausible, right? It's 99% of women and it's such a stigmatizing thing. How can it be that people didn't express that, that only 1% of the women in the study expressed regret? And they couched this question in very meaningful experiences they had in a more religious setting where they experienced women in retreats where women would, you know, break down and cry and exp express a lot of remorse and regret about this experience they had having an abortion. And again, this person has experienced these women in these scenarios, women who experience a lot of, a lot of regret over and over again. From their perspective, they've just met so many women that have had this regretful experience that it can't be. It just doesn't comport with the 99% statistic that was in the study. This is really a question about generalizability, right? Does the study provide generalizable information? Can we take what we've learned from this 99% stat and apply it to women in general in the United States? And one thing to identify is like, there's a margin of error. I don't know what the margin of error is in this particular study about uh, regret, but I'm sure the researchers would say it's 99% of women plus or minus however many percentage points in either direction, right? So, well, in, in the direction of less women, right? Because it's already at 99%. You're kind of hitting the ceiling at 100%. So that's something to acknowledge. One is that, yeah, the, the numbers around 99%. It's not exactly 99%. The other thing to acknowledge is amongst the millions of women who have abortions, 99% is still quite a, a few people. It's like a lot, hundreds of thousands of women potentially who are regretting their decision to have an abortion, even though it's the 1% of, of women. So it is possible that you'll know somebody who has encountered hundreds or even thousands of women who regret their abortions. And that still aligns with the 99% statistic that is in the study. That That's actually possible because it could be that you're in a particular setting where women who regret abortions are more likely to approach you. And 
this is kind of what I think is going on with this particular listener. The person who brought up this uh, concern about the 99% statistic was in a highly religious setting where the people there are kind of primed to think about the sins that they've committed and to talk about that in the setting. And so we know that a lot of the stigma that comes along with abortion, and there's been studies there, there in the show notes about abortion, comes from a religious settings. So a lot of the stigma that women experience is because they're religious or they are in a religious community and they've heard the message over and over from their religious leaders and their family members and their friends that say abortion's bad. Anyone who has one is a sinner, those types of things. So this, so religion actually facilitates stigma and makes people more regretful. So it makes sense that you would encounter more re regretful people in a religious setting. On the other hand, the study did not focus on a religious setting. It also didn't focus on a religious setting necessarily. It studied 956 women across 30 geographically diverse areas in the United States. There were women from a variety of backgrounds. Some of them said it was a very difficult decision. Uh, in fact, it was uh, 178 people in the study said, this was a very difficult decision, but I had to make it anyway. And then there was 180 who said it was somewhat difficult. And there were 309 that said it was not difficult. But if you look, there's a really great graphic, and we'll put it in the show notes too, of the trajectory of regret over time. And the women who said it was a very difficult decision, it's it's on a four-point scale, zero to four. Um, women who said it was a very difficult decision put themselves between, on average, between one and two. So even amongst women who said it was very difficult, they had regret, but maybe not as much as you would think. This is immediately following the procedure they got, the abortion they received. And from there, it just fell down to an average of a point, about a 0.6. And every group was at this level. So most women, as the study says, don't regret their decision. Now, does that mean they don't experience any kind of negative feelings about this? The study doesn't investigate every kind of emotion that a woman might experience about this. Maybe they do have some kind of remorse, right? Maybe they say, well, I didn't like it. It wasn't the greatest time period of my life, but it was a necessary thing I had to get done in order to be financially stable or whatever. There could be a variety of ways that people conceived of the decision, but that doesn't mean that they have to regret it. Um, and I think that's a really key piece. Yeah, just to double click on that, I actually want to incorporate some more of the findings from the Ferguson and colleagues research, including a second paper that they published in 2009. And they actually have a similar rate of regret as the Turnaway study. So I mean, it's, it's a little bit lower, but in their sample, which again, ostensibly shows uh, slightly different findings than the Turnaway study, nearly 90% said the decision to have an abortion was the correct one. Only 2% reported that they believed the decision to be incorrect. So even, even the studies that are ostensibly showing other findings are still seemingly converging on this finding that, yes, people who go through abortions, it's, it's not fun, but it may be that they're feeling that overall it's the right decision. And they also report the women in these studies, similar to what Dr. Steinberg was explaining to us, they report a mixture of positive and negative emotions. Mm -hmm. So the negative re uh, reactions may be offset by the positive ones. So you have feelings of perhaps guilt or loss or grief and related emotions, but also uh, happiness and, and satisfaction and feeling like, you know, this is the, the right thing to do. And I think that's important to keep in mind. Like emotional health is very tricky. It's, it's complicated. Just like, you know, the, the theme of the show where we're, we're trying, we're trying to assess uh, various ways in which people might experience challenging periods in their life. And it's not going to be 100% positive. You know, sometimes you may hear a number like, oh, 99% said that this was good. But even that is probably an oversimplification. It's probably like, this is the lesser of two evils, or this is, you know, the, the, the best of a lot of bad decisions that we might have to make in life. And we're just going to do what we need to do and carry on. 
And there are positive feelings associated with that. Well said. Yeah, I think like a meta issue here with everything we cover on the show and, you know, Dylan and I have this experience all the time. Sometimes the way you think about something, just the, your intuition about how something works just doesn't match the data. It doesn't match the peer-reviewed, like, best research on this topic. And as researchers, Dylan and I encounter this all the time. You, you just read a study that tells you you're wrong about something. And you have two choices at that point. Well, you have a few different choices. <laughs> but on one hand, you could dismiss the findings and stay with your intuition about how things work. And you, and you can do that. The other thing you can do is just change the way you see the world based on the best data you have. And in this case, the best data we have is that most people, the, the vast majority of women, 90 to 99% of women, uh, actually it's 98 to 99% of women don't uh, regret having an abortion. And so this may not match our intuitions and our lived experiences, right? You might be in a scenario where you're just surrounded by women who regret their abortions, but you have to be able to separate your life experiences that might tell you one thing from the data and the scientific research that tells you a different thing. If you listen to our show long enough, you're going to encounter these things all the time. I guarantee you, Dylan and I, as researchers, encounter these things all the time. We were constantly having to shift the way we see something because we we're encountering new evidence. And also, the statistical evidence is never going to fully capture the experience of every single person. And this is another point that the Ferguson and colleagues paper has, which is that, you know, for for some women, there's there's, you know, there's always going to be some women for whom abortion is a traumatic and extremely stressful process that might predict future mental illness. And we we don't want to, like, sweep those cases under the rug, yeah. even if they are in a statistical minority, like they're 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 important to. Uh, keep in mind as well. Yeah. And this study suggests a solution. Like, let's stop stigmatizing abortion because stigma is what's driving a lot of the mental health problems that women do have if they have an abortion. So if we can stop stigmatizing women, if religious communities can stop focusing on you sinned, this is a sin, and instead focus on how can I help? How can I help a woman who's struggling with the decision they made? First thing you can do is don't tell her she's a bad person for doing something that she had to do for economic reasons or for whatever reason that came up in her life. And so I think that that's just a really key bit of learning from the research that we've done on this topic. Thanks for listening. Join us next time on A Bit More Complicated. If you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe to our podcast, leave a friendly rating, and share with a friend. If you have a reaction you'd like to share with us, please find us on Twitter at a bit more pod or send an email to more complicated pod at gmail.com. <laughs>